So if you're walking along a shoreline um, and you're doing it at low tide, because of course the tide comes in and out uh, every day, um, if you're if you're down on the beach at the lowest tide of the year, uh, a clam garden um, would look like a rock wall right at the low tide position, and then a flattened terrace on the landward side of the wall. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm your host, Marion Kilgore. Today we're discussing clam gardens on the west coast of Canada and the U.S. and how Indigenous people have been actively managing food resources in the area for thousands of years. Later on, I'm talking to Dr. Marco Hatch about Indigenous marine management and conservation. But first, I have Nicole Smith and Dana Lepofsky to speak about their recent research into the age of clam garden rock walls built on the coast of British Columbia. Dana is a professor in the Department of Archaeology at Simon Fraser University. Her research program is focused on documenting how Northwest Coast peoples interacted with their environment and situating this ancient knowledge in current social and ecological contexts. Nicole is a freelance archaeologist based in Victoria, B.C. She has been involved in archaeological research on the B.C. coast since 2000, collaborating with First Nations communities, the Hakai Institute, Parks Canada, and colleagues at various universities. So thanks to you both for speaking to me today. Thanks nice to be for having here. Us. <laughs> so why are these called clam gardens? That's a really great question. Why are they called clam gardens? And that has actually been one of the focuses of the research of the Clam Garden Network is figuring out how do these gardens for clams create healthier clams, more clams, sustainable food resources. And there's actually lots of different ways that they do that. And we've learned about that from talking to Indigenous elders, from working with ecologists, archaeologists, a whole range of knowledge holders have come together to answer the question, how exactly do these gardens make for healthier clams? There are some really basic ways of any gardeners out there know that just tilling and tending a place will make it a more productive garden. Adding fertilizer or something that the whatever is growing makes for a better garden. So in the case of clam gardens, our indigenous um, um, friends and elders have told us that they sometimes added broken up shell to augment the, the substrate, to augment the sediment in which the clams grow, because we know, of course, that clams like a calcium-rich deposit to grow in. We know that just like when you're garden at home, if you want to pull weeds that are kind of preventing you from growing the things you want, um, traditional knowledge holders and managers used to uh, get removed predators from the garden that might have gotten in the way of clams. And likewise, a big part of this was removing rocks or rolling the rocks down slope to build your wall, but also to make room for clams. So it's really just if you imagine how you're going to be gardening in this gorgeous weather today, that's how you would be actually cultivating clams in a clam garden in the way that people have done it here on the coast for thousands of years. So how old does the research that you two have been working on, uh, along with, with your other collaborators, show that these rock wells are? Well, <laughs> It's really, it's, you know, we, we get at the age of these things in two very different ways. And we talked about how understanding clam gardens requires bringing together all kinds of knowledge. So we have the Western scientific way of dating these things and also the indigenous knowledge around them. 
And Nicole, maybe you want to share both those kinds of ways of knowing? Sure, sure. Yeah, so certainly um, what we've learned from community members is that um, tending beaches and, and looking after them and caring for them is something that has been happening for many, many, many generations um, and, of course, continues today. And so um, when we began looking at these places, we um, expected that that they would be very old and have a great time depth. And, um, and so our, our work has been then seeing if we can find, um, ways of aging these structures. And it can be difficult because the walls themselves are made of rock, of, of, um, inorganic materials. And so you can't easily date the rock directly. Um, as archaeologists, we love to use radiocarbon dating, particularly in the, in the more recent periods, like over the last 10,000 years or so. And so, um, to radiocarbon date, we need to find, uh, organisms that have had carbon in them or, or have carbon in them. And so, um, it was really, uh, an experiment to begin with to see what we could find within the walls that, that might allow us to use radiocarbon dating. And, um, We've now dated nine rock wall features up on our study area of Quadra Island. And what we've found is that with because the walls are built in an intertidal environment um, that, of course, is very rich with lots of organisms finding their homes there, um, we can uh, look for the creatures or the critters that have either been trapped by the wall when the wall was built um, or look for those that have grown and died within the wall, within the spaces between the rocks. And so what that means is that we've um, tried to date um, barnacles that have that were attached to the rocks when they were moved into the wall and have become trapped in the sediment. Um, we've also dated uh, limpets and whelks as well that um, that grow within the wall or, or get trapped in the wall. And then, of course, the clams that have been trapped by the wall or grown in the wall after it was built. And so those are, are the main, um, I guess, sample types that we have, uh, radiocarbon dated. And, um, and what, and then we've also, uh, in addition to the radiocarbon dating, we're really fortunate up on Quadra Island. Um, to have have a really clear understanding of how the shorelines have changed over time, and um, they haven't been stable. So the the shoreline as we see it today is not how uh, it has always been. In fact, in that part of the coast, um, the sea level has been dropping over the last fourteen thousand years, and in the last um, say five thousand years, we have a fairly clear understanding of where the shoreline positions were. So in addition to our radiocarbon dating, we're also looking at the position of the walls in relation to that knowledge of former shorelines and bringing those two lines of evidence together. Um, and what they've, what they've shown us is that um, these walls do indeed go back uh, at least 3,500 years, um, but that they have also, as as community has has uh, shared with us, 
Um, the dates also show that people have been using them continuously through that 3,500 years right up until the present day. And of course, elders um, share their knowledge of, of harvesting in these places and, and people still go out and dig clams in them today. So it's really wonderful to see these different lines of evidence coming together. So for people who aren't familiar with with clams and harvesting clams, um, why does, so when you build a wall and fill the landward side with it, of it with sediment, where are the clams situated in that sediment? Are they on top? Are they below? How does this work? That's a great, great question. Um, so anybody who's played in the beach and in the intertidal knows that as you walk down the beach, you find that critters do best at certain zones in the intertidal. So that's because they have some combination of being exposed to the air and being underwater as to do with salinity and temperature. So butter clams and, and little necks, native little necks that we're talking about were mostly targeted in clam gardening in the past, um, have a certain zone in which they flourish. So what people have shared with us and what we find by measuring the walls, the, the height of the walls, is that people built these walls to a certain height so that they're maximizing that, that elevation, if you can imagine, where those clams do best. So if you can imagine an original beach has got a slope on it, and there's only a thin little bit of area where butter clams and little necks flourish. But if you fill in your terrace, naturally through wave action, depositing sand over the generations and people adding sediment. If you can picture in your mind's eye, that wedge, that part of the intertidal zone is going to increase because you're going to flatten out the slope of your beach and that area where the clams do best is going to be wider. So in that zone, clams, as we say, get fat and happy and they wriggle down to their their ideal depth, which for little necks is about 10 centimeters and butter clams is about 30 centimeters. And they live there and grow in that in that cultivated zone. But what we find in clam gardens sometimes, like the ones that have been constructed not on previous beaches, but on bedrock, so people are creating beaches where there were none before, creating clam habitat where there was none before, that sometimes those those created habitats are so healthy for the clams, the clams are doing so well, that they're actually only about 10 centimeters of nice um, gravelly and shelly sediment on those rocks, and the clams are just packed in there. So if you ask an ecology textbook, that shouldn't actually be a place where clams grow great because it's not deep enough, but we've seen some of the most productive clams so it's kind of changing how we think about the ecology of these critters. Once they're tended by people over generations, we're, they're increasing the productivity and the zones in which they do best. So some of these terraces, people, it's, it's not as though someone looked out on a beach and thought, I can extend this area where the clams are happy. They were actually going to an area where there weren't any clams and from scratch creating habitat for them. Yeah, they were doing both. That's what's so cool about them. We, we find that in some cases people are 
starting with a healthy beach and then augmenting them on the sides. We call them the suburbs. They're going to places that are rocky slopes and pushing out those rocky slopes and creating beach where there is none prior or no, no room for clams. And they're going to bedrock shelves and building terraces and then creating beaches there. So they're doing a lot to actually augment the clam habitat in the in the area that we're working in. So shells and rocks, um, I mean, well, shells in particular, since that's what you can carbon date, last for a long time on a beach. You know, they wash in, they wash out, who knows how long they've been there. So how do you determine whether a shell that you found in one of these rock walls is later than the wall, something that grew there, something that got added during construction, or something that is actually contemporary with the construction of the wall? Oh, my God. That's the best question. Hey, Nicole? Yeah, it's a great one. Should we, <laughs> should we tell how many years it took us to figure that out? <laughs> well, go ahead, Nicole. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful question. Um, because it is a challenge, and they are really dynamic places. And so what we what we learned is that um, context is very, very important. So as we're doing our excavations, we have to be really uh, attentive to all the shells that we're seeing within our excavation units. And, um, and it became clear to us that um, because you can have broken up shells, um, that we really did need to find those clams that had died in, um, in place. And th so that means that um, they would have to have their two valves together and they would have to be oriented in the uh, right position that clams will tend to live in so that we could be confident that they had lived and died in that place. Um, we did have occasions where, where we tried to date a single valve. Um, and, and it was obvious in some of those instances from the dates that had come back that that valve had been deposited later or added by, by people to the wall, for example. So we, we were really careful, um, then after learning this that we, we had to find clams in growth position. And, um, we have a number of samples that we collected, uh, from below the rock walls. And so, here, again, we have clams in growth position that have been trapped by a wall. And now clams, clamshells, they do last and survive on the beaches um, for thousands of years. So even though we found a clam below the wall, all that could tell us is that the wall had been built sometime after the age of that clam. But because clams will the clamshells will survive. We can't say for sure that the wall was built at that same age as the clam. And that's where that second piece, that second line of evidence, and in this case, our understanding of the, the former shoreline positions and the sea level history, why that was so important. Um, because we had a number of clamshells that dated to that three to 4,000 year period that was below the walls. Um, but just on its own, we can't say for sure that's the age of the wall. So that's where the sea level curve was so important and how we could then look at shoreline position 
around the three to three and a half thousand year time period and say, okay, the heights of the walls um, and the positions of the clams relate to that former shoreline position as well. So we have those two lines of evidence coming together in that case. How much has the sea level on the coast of BC varied over the, you know, three or 4,000 year time period that you were looking at? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question too. And it really varies depending on where you are on the coast. And this is one thing that archaeologists are very aware of now. Um, and that is that, that the shoreline position or sea levels have changed, um, in different ways depending on where you are on the coast. And the reason for that is that um, at the, la- the last glaciation, um, there was ice that covered, um, covered various parts of the coast. And what happens is when that glacial ice, the weight of the ice, pushes down on the land, the land gets depressed. But the ice isn't uniform. It's thicker and thinner in some places. And so the weight is different. And so how the land then moves below will vary depending on where you are on the coast. And then when that water, when the glaciers melt and um, and the weight of the ice comes off, the land is going to rebound in different ways. And then you also have tectonic activity that that works in there too. And so what it means is that the what we call relative sea level histories are very specific um, and highly localized. So on Quadra Island, um, we see sea level has been falling for the last 14,000 years. Um, over the last 3,000 years, it's changed about a meter. But in other parts of the coast, it's an opposite story. So the southern Gulf Islands, for example, around Victoria and Salt Spring Island, Pender Island, there, the sea levels have been rising for the last um, 12, 13,000 years. And so what this what this means is that um, in, in terms of clam garden research, that up on Quadra Island, some of our, our walls are a little bit higher in the intertidal, like just a little bit above low tide. Whereas in the Southern Gulf Islands, some of the walls are, are now underwater. So um, it's very, it's very localized how, how the shorelines have, have shifted over time. And, and that, that dropping that dropping sea level was to our advantage. So when Nicole and I set out, as archaeologists do, to find the oldest site, we went to those beaches where we found rock walls that were too high to cl- to grow clams today. So we thought these have to be older. So we call them kind of high and dry places. So clams that we found growing in those beaches, which are way too high in the intertidal for clams today. The clams we found had to have been older because sea level has since dropped and stranded those places. So ideally, we could find clam gardens that are high in the beach, but that do not have settlements, village sites behind them because, of course, as people were living in these places, as the sea level is dropping, they're dismantling rocks from the clam gardens and rolling them down the beach to keep in pace with the sea level change. So in places where there are old villages, we tend not to find the really old rock walls because they would have been in the way. 
but in places where there are rock walls, clam gardens built, and there happens to be no village behind them on the beach or above the beach, that's where we find the oldest clam gardens. So likely there are older clam gardens who are just They've been dismantled and kind of as part of the evolving picture that is clam garden cultivation. So we're lucky to find the ones we did, and sea level change, the dropping of sea level really helped us there. The the rock walls that aren't necessarily near a recent village and, and probably haven't been maintained much in the last few thousand years, how do... Um, what sort of shape are they in? Aside from the fact that they're at the wrong elevation, are these rock walls mostly intact or have they sort of fallen apart? Or Yeah, good question. Well, several things about that. One, I want when folks imagine these clam gardens and you're imagining the wall, don't imagine a cement beautiful wall like we see today around, I don't know, around a, a building. Rather, you can imagine that these are the accumulation of rocks being rolled down the beach to the lowest low tide, kind of away from the area of cultivation. So they're more like, what would you say, Nicole, linear rock piles, hey? Is that a better way of describing them? And they're made of rocks of various sizes that people roll down and out of the way. Um, and in fact, lohiwe, the kwakwala, the kwakwakwak word for um, clam gardens that was shared to us originally from the late Chief Adam Dick actually means to roll to roll the rocks. So they these clam gardens though, so they were constantly maintained. And as Nicole said, they were probably they were built initially starting at least three thousand five hundred years ago, but then communities continued to maintain them until they stopped working them. And we know from talking to community members that. They continue to maintain them until quite recently. It's only because of change in access to beaches through privatization and so on that people have stopped visiting these places regularly. And sadly, the other major piece in this was the dramatic um, negative consequences of colonization and in this case, particular European introduced diseases. So there was major population declines. Um, in the late 1700s, mid 1800s, as a result of these introduced diseases, and of those, of course, with the decline in populations, people then moved out of some of these villages they lived in for thousands and thousands of years and consolidated into other places. So, interestingly, what we find in Quadra is in places where we see, let's say, an older terrace wall high on the beach, and then maybe a second one lower on the beach. And then we see some that are right at the current sea level. So they were built recently, but a lot of them aren't completed. And we think it's because people left those areas as a result of those disruptions. And it's just so great that in many parts of the coast, many, many parts of the coast, First Nations are reclaiming these places and are rebuilding these gardens. And there are Indigenous peoples up and down the coast who have community-led um, projects to reclaim these places that have been their gardens for thousands and thousands of years. So when Europeans arrived on the West Coast, um, did they recognize these as like an actively managed food source or like method of food production? Or were people assuming that 
this is just where clams grow? It's only um, actually very recently that people have um, started to accept that people uh, have been cultivating the beaches. And so when the early... um, early Europeans arrived, they certainly um, were not uh, commenting on the, um, the management and, and tending and tilling of, of the beaches. Um, that's something that, that tends to have been omitted. And that's why I think clam gardens are really uh, an exciting feature is that they're really challenging those early stereotypes and Eurocentric views of, of peoples of the coast. Because for a long time, um, p- people on this coast have been talked about as, as, as hunter gatherers, um, where they were living in such a bountiful environment, um, where the salmon would essentially swim to them. And, and so I think what this is showing, and also Dana, you should, you could speak to so many more examples of how people have, have cultivated and cared for the environment in ways that didn't necessarily fit those European models. And, and so I think that clam gardens are a really compelling, um, a compelling example of how people have, have cared for and managed um, the environment in ways that, that really can help break down some of those stereotypes. And I'm sure Dana, you have, have, have much more you could say um, in regards to, um, resources beyond the clams as well. Yeah, that's that's really well said, Nicole. Well, just a couple things to add. One is that, as Nicole said, these these methods of management start in the intertidal, and you can imagine kind of walking up from the beach. People manage um, the upper intertidal for plants. They manage the terrestrial areas for a whole range of um, berries and trees, all the way up to the alpine. So we say from the ocean floor to the mountain top, people were applying all these traditional management techniques. And it's not just on the coast. Like the problem that Nicole is talking about of the Europeans not recognizing is global. And as you know, it my work in Tahiti, it doesn't really matter. Europeans come came to these new places with preconceived ideas about the right way to interact with the environment. And anything different, they just couldn't see. Or they, or most people didn't see, and then those ideas, those 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 notions got kind of reified, got solidified in people's thinking. They played a role in colonization and in believing that ah, oh, people don't need a lot of land. This is all wilderness. We can move anywhere. It's a global problem for indigenous peoples, and in that the Europeans who haven't understood those systems but have written definitively about people's interactions with their landscape and have affected them to this day. And it's a big issue, Indigenous rights and title across the world, including on the Northwest Coast. So there was this idea that these people aren't actively managing their land to improve food production, so we can move them all you know, over to here, over to this reserve, and they'll manage just fine. They don't need the space. They'll be just fine. That's exactly right. Or, or not, depending on who's saying it. It's not, right. It's not just it takes away their land. It also takes away, there's so much more about connection to a place and your identity and you're passing that knowledge on to the, your kiddos and, 
you know, we talked about different lines of evidence. All this knowledge is embedded in oral traditions and songs and place names. And that's, in fact, another way that we understand clam gardens. But if you move people from those places and prohibit them from acting out these social and economic and political actions that they've done, they've done for millennia, you've really changed how they see themselves and each other and their connection to place. So it's an incredible tribute and recognition of indigenous resilience that there is such a strong feeling of connection to these places still, and the knowledge is still held, even though people have been actively removed from those places. I I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. Did you, Nicole, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Uh, I just wanted to say, Dana, that was beautifully put. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're in a new place now where, um, where it's possible to have these conversations. And I think that we, um, it can feel uncomfortable because we want to, we know things haven't been right and we want to make them better and we don't want to be disrespectful. Um, but we all need the courage to go there if we're going to heal together. Um, and so I, um, and it's something that, you know, my, myself even too, I feel so privileged to do the work that I do, um, and to meet the people that I get to meet with and, and, and work with. And, um, and sometimes it means having, having uncomfortable and difficult conversations to get us to a better place. And, and I think just being, having the courage to be open to that is, uh, is wonderful. Thank you both so much for joining me to talk about this today. Oh, well, thank you for your, your interest, Marian. Thank you. You can learn more about Dana Lepofsky and Nicole Smith and find links to information about clam gardens and their other research at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, we'll have Marco Hatch. Dr. Marco Hatch is an assistant professor of environmental science at Western Washington University and is a member of the Samish Indian Nation. As a marine ecologist, he helps Native American students gain greater access to STEM opportunities while respecting Coast Salish tribal people, landscapes, and seascapes. He's created a wonderfully diverse lab charged with preparing the next generation of environmental scientists and leaders through fostering respect for Indigenous knowledge and providing students with a solid background in scientific methods. His research focuses on the nexus of people and marine ecology centered on Indigenous marine management. So thanks very much for speaking to me today. Thanks for having me. What sort of research does your lab try to look at? Um, at our core, we're, we do more or less basic marine ecology. What's out there? How many of them are there? What are they eating? Um, but we tend to do that in the framework around thinking about how Indigenous people have, have managed ecosystems for thousands of years and uh, within an, indi an indigenous knowledge system, um, meaning that while we might be looking at how many clams are there, how big are they, how fast are they growing, we try to do that in the context of um, looking at indigenous management systems. Um, in this case, we do a fair amount with clam gardens, uh, which I'll explain in a minute. 
Um, and that's answering questions like how has management that's been practiced for thousands of years impact the biology and ecology of these marine species? How are the questions that your research group tries to answer maybe different than what you might typically see in a marine ecology uh, research group? Uh, so one is, I think we, we tend to put things in a, a, a bit more context. And so why, why do we care about the clam populations in this area? What's the impact to people and uh, what's the impact to both um, inherent rights? So people's inherent right to go out and, and harvest. Um, and we also tend to look at um, s- some of the mechanisms that are invoked within traditional management, meaning that there are ways that people have worked with ecosystems for thousands of years. And we tend to ask, what are the mechanisms that are at play? Not testing is indigenous uh, resource management valid. We're asking the question, when people manage ecosystems like they have for thousands of years, what tools are they using? Um, when they go out and selectively harvest, what's the impact of that to the to the animals that aren't harvested, that are left behind? Uh, do they grow faster? Um, does it result in a higher density overall? Uh, questions like that. How are the clam gardens uh, in, involved in that sort of management system, and and what does the what does the presence of the clam garden? change in that regard in terms of harvesting and the ecology? Yeah, so uh, clam gardens are these uh, really special beaches that have been modified, um, that have been terraced, like you can terrace a hill to grow more grapes or grow more more trees, um, where you can move large rocks to the low tide line and make a big flat beach that's in the perfect spot for clams. Uh, I often call it the Goldilocks zone, where the the clams live too low, they get eaten by sea stars. If they live too high, they dry out and die. And so these massive beaches were, or these beaches were built in this exact zone. Um, and it's a modification we see from uh, off the tip of Victoria all the way up through Southeast Alaska. Um, and we've observed, um, and many of my colleagues have observed, densities uh, two to three times higher in clam gardens compared to non-clam gardens. So the number of clams can be a few times larger uh, in a clam garden compared to a non-clam garden. Growth rates are faster, so each individual is growing faster, as well as the area for um, the available habitats increased. And so there's more area to grow clams. So you can think of it as a few different ways. One is you're increasing the size of your field you're increasing the number of organisms per unit area per meter squared in, in that field. And you're increasing the growth of each of those organisms within that field. So it's really providing a, a wide variety or multiple ways of increasing clam productivity. Yeah. When you describe it like that, it sounds like, you know, just the beach version of agriculture. You're setting up an environment that's ideal for, this particular plant or whatever and and tending to it so it grows yeah the it is a very intentional uh intelligent specific form of beach management that requires um 
a, a lot of involvement and a lot of specialized knowledge about how to care for that beach. It's not, um, it's not simply just putting a rock wall and letting things go. Um, it involves constant maintenance and interaction, um, intending um, that managing marine systems, managing beaches is a active management. It's not a passive thing. And so there are a lot of parallels to that. And what you would think of as uh, either as modern agriculture or even just tending a garden in your backyard, right? You have to go out there, till the soil, um, make sure you're removing any undesirables, uh, pulling out the big carrots so the little ones have space to grow, things like that. So what sort of activities would typically be done on a clam garden as, as maintenance? So the uh, a few things. One is the rock wall that's built on the low tide line. Uh, wave action, winter storms tend to make those rocks roll and fall out of the rock wall. So that needs to be cleaned up and those rocks need to be moved back into the rock wall so they're not in the middle of the clam beach. Um, digging the beach is actually a really big piece. And so... Again, really parallel to your backyard garden that you have to go back and till the garden. You can't just leave it there year after year. Um, the soil gets compacted. Um, the act of digging beaches helps kind of fluff, for lack of a better term, the sediment, uh, wash away some of the fine grain material, some of the organics that could suffocate the baby clams. And so it really helps improve the sediment qualities of the beach, which then provides a better home for the clams. So in my previous interview with, with Dana and Nicole, we talked about the the evidence and the research they've been working on on how, you know, many thousand years old these some of these clam gardens are. Um, does it matter? This is kind of a broad question, but does it matter that there's more evidence now supporting how old some of these structures and how some of these managed beaches are? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Does it matter? I think it certainly does. Um, it's hard to say what we don't know as well. Um, and it's a really interesting story because of this change in sea level and this uh, land masses moving uh, up and down that it's kind of hard to pinpoint. I think it's interesting and important to think about these practices for happening for thousands of years uh, because it does a few things. One is that really cements and helps understand how indigenous people of the Pacific Northwest have been actively managing ecosystems for thousands of years, that it helps counter some of the narrative around um, hunter-gatherer and, and some of the thoughts that are some of the ideas and theories have been pushed that p people in the Pacific Northwest were quite passive in the environment, that they couldn't they lack the skills and ability to modify the environment and here's a technology that we can date back to thousands of years before present um, that is a massive modification that requires a lot of specialized knowledge and skill and leaves a big footprint on the environment that the number of these features from uh, Victoria to Southeast Alaska uh, we don't even know how many there are but there's got to be over you know in the thousands of them that this technology was used up and down the coast to make these massive modifications that required care, understanding, cooperative cooperation on building the wall, um, systems of ownership and stewardship of these areas. Um, it's really a symbol of lots and lots of complexity that I think that certain groups uh, 
has not always been been recognized when it comes to indigenous people of the Northwest. And so I think clam gardens are a, a great counter to, to that, to that narrative. What other sorts of food resource or, or land or marine management uh, do we know about in these areas? Um, so we've got clam gardens. Uh, we, in the previous interview, talked a little bit about fish traps what else was going on in the areas? Yeah, it's, it's quite impressive when you start thinking about it and, and zooming out a bit, but really every, every piece of the ecosystem has been modified and, and managed. Um, clam gardens are one example in the intertidal. Um, stonefish traps are certainly visible. There's estuarine root gardens. Um, there's berry patches in the, up in the terrestrial uh, canvas meadows, um, canvas gardens that have rock walls associated with them, um, burning on a landscape scale, lighting small light fires every uh, maybe four to seven years across landscapes to help keep them open, to, to maintain an ecosystem that had a few large trees and more of an open savanna uh, landscape compared to what we have now in the Northwest, which tends to be more densely packed trees. And so by burning it, it altered the whole landscape and kept things more open, um, helped promote some of the desirable species like camas, provide browse for herbivores like deer. And so that really, the landscape looked completely different five, 600 years ago compared to what it looks like now through that management that's been happening for thousands of years. And, and once that started to be reduced, Really, everything on land and everything in the ocean has changed a, a, a large amount. Yeah. So if the land and the sea, you know, and rivers were being actively used, actively managed uh, by people, and then, you know, as colonization happened, some of that or quite a lot of that dropped off. When we're talking about conservation of these areas today, what what does that even mean? What should we be thinking about if yeah. what we see today is not what it would have been 500 or a thousand years ago? Yeah. And that's, that's a good question because it, it brings up a, a, a bunch of things. One is, you know, what is our, what's our conservation goal? What are we trying to restore to? Um, and within that, the, the shifting baseline syndrome that we've lost that view of what ecosystems used to look like. Um, we've lost that view of what ecosystems look like 50 or 75 years ago, let alone 500 or 750 years ago. And so what is our, what is the intention of that restoration? Um, and if it's to bring it back to uh, a pre-contact ecosystem, then uh, we really do need to think about implementing, re-implementing, indigenous management because that's how those systems uh, were maintained. That's how they got to look that way. And so really when we're talking about large scale ecological restoration, um, you can't talk about it without also talking about re-implementation of cultural practices and um, getting folks out on the land and seascape to man to um, practice their uh, inherent rights. Additionally, I think it does bring up some of the questions around conservation where if the purpose of conservation is um, to keep systems 
uh, from being impacted by people, by keeping people out, here's an instance where that then is creating a very unnatural system. Now you're not letting people go into a certain area. You're not letting people harvest. You're not letting people practice traditional practices in a certain area to make it natural with quotes. Um, that's the first time that ecosystem seen that for thousands of years. And so by doing that, you're actually creating a very um, artificial environment. And so I think we can't disentangle the human interaction with the environment. Um, and I think it's important to think about human interaction with the environment from a positive standpoint, not necessarily humans plus environment equals bad, but humans plus the environment can, uh, can be very positive as well. So does it matter who's leading the conservation efforts and who's coming up with the strategy for, for conserving or restoring landscapes and ecosystems? I think there's lots of good examples of partnership and collaboration. Um, but in that instance, none of those partnerships and collaborations are possible without early and genuine collaboration with the local indigenous groups, um, whether it be first nations or tribes. So you have to have, you have to um, take lead from your, your indigenous partners. Um, but there are examples of good, good partnership coming from state, local or federal agencies as well uh, in partnership with, with local indigenous groups. What are some ways uh, that you've seen work really well getting uh, local groups and community members involved in basic marine research and also uh, in in conservation and restoration efforts? Um, so, so, yeah, working with in indigenous groups and in, in my case, working in uh, an academic institution um, th does offer opportunity for good partnership. I think that foundational to a lot of those partnerships are uh, the ability to come together around some shared interests and some shared, um, shared language. And so often when, uh, when we partner, it's often important to have somebody there that can understand concerns and uh, language from within the community and understand the language and structure of academic institutions um, to help kind of broker broker these these partnerships and make sure that nothing's getting lost in in translation, as well as working with uh, uh, youth has been uh, really great. Getting uh, youth out on the beaches, um, engaging with knowledge holders around uh, working with youth. Um, we've also done a fair amount with. Um, Bringing, bringing it back in, bringing this beach manager back in with um, traditional diets. And so thinking about promoting indigenous diets and promoting healthy diets also brings up the next question of where do we harvest? Um, is it safe to harvest? And, um, you know, where can we get access? Yeah, over the, over the years, I imagine access to beaches has definitely changed with private land ownership and maybe somebody now owns this part of the beach and they don't want people going around digging it up. Does community involvement help with some of those issues? 
in in the state of Washington, uh, treaty tribes through the Rafiti decision have uh, are, are co-managers for shellfish resources. So they have access to 50% of the available shellfish resources. Um, in Washington, people can also own the inner title, which doesn't supersede that right, but it can create some misinformation by landowners um, uh, about chasing folks off. Uh, but it can also present barriers from being able to walk in to a lot of these beaches. And so we've, as the shoreline gets developed, it gets harder and harder to have shore access to cleaner beaches. And so then it becomes an issue with, with transportation, um, getting to, to uh, beaches that require boat access. So in general, access is a, is a big barrier to, to going out and clamming, um, having to have that, that infrastructure of, uh, of boats or fuel or being able to find clean beaches to harvest from. The the whole issue of land access seems to be a problem around a lot of natural areas. Like I'm in Edmonton and we have uh, a pretty big river valley and there's, you know, discussions and disputes over somebody's got this really nice house built up toward along the edge of the valley, but there's supposed to be public access to the valley all the way along the edge. So how does that work? And it seems like it's a similar sort of issue all over the place. Yeah, for sure. We see it here. There's, um, uh, there's a lot of developments that have gone in where gates go up or access paths get closed. And um, even if there's a legal allowance to make that access, there's a fair amount of either confrontation or some difficulty associated with it. Um, and that's a big concern because it's, it's really, if we, if we're not out on the beaches, if we're not out digging clams, if we're not out practicing inherent rights, then, um, then you start to, you start to lose them. If you're not engaged in it, then, then you're, you're losing it. And so, um, it's a big concern of mine, uh, that we have a few public access places available, uh, but not nearly the, the amount of coastline that we used to, um, both through, Concerns around uh, pollution, um, runoff, red tide events, as well as just being able to get down to those beaches and and access them. Yeah. How does uh, industrial activity, whether that's, you know, agriculture on the land or uh, more large scale aquaculture and fishing, how does that affect uh, clam beds and clam gardens? Uh, locally and in uh, Bellingham Bay, the Nooksack River drains into the Bellingham Bay, and, and there's been a, a fair amount of fecal coliform closures associated with that. So that's bacteria that are associated with um, the guts of warm-blooded animals. Um, so, the, so we've had some, some big closures locally from that. Um, our red tides seem to be getting worse every year. Um, we had some pretty big closures throughout the end of last year. Uh, where clamming was closed all the way through, through I believe through November, uh, maybe a bit longer, really quite unheard of. And then in some of the other areas uh, in Fidalgo Bay, which is uh, near where where Sandwich has some property, uh, were immediately adjacent to uh, two large refineries. Um, so there's some concerns about that, as well as some um, uh, runoff from some old. Um, uh, old railroad facilities and some other other facilities. So it's it's tough because in a lot of these areas, 
we don't know what the the values are for these particularly the industrial toxins. Um, we don't really know what's out there, but there's a perception of uh, of pollution, and that perception prevents people from harvesting. So it's I think everybody I talk to wants more information on that, and um, it's it's one thing we just don't have either that information collected or disseminated well enough to make people on the beach feel like they're, they have all the information they need about where to dig. I was just curious, have you encountered much, and I'm not even sure of the right way to word this question, but do you get much skepticism about when you talk about the extent to which Indigenous people were modifying the landscape thousands of years ago? Yeah. Yeah, for sure, actually. Um, and uh, there's actually a quote that we talk about from the Introducing Anthropology textbook, uh, which is like the introduction Anthropology 101 textbook that is used in many universities. Um, talks about one of the local, one of the Pacific Northwest societies, um, Indigenous groups as being so populous because the food just came to them, um, implying that they're just passive in the environment. Um, and I think that's some of the work in the terrestrial landscape, looking at burning and maintaining ecosystems that using that, that technology, um, has helped. But when you go to the ocean and you look at the beach and you look at the water, you just, it's just hard to think about how it's hard for people to conceptualize how you know, thousands of years ago, people were, were modifying this, these areas. So I think it's changing. I think the perceptions are changing in a, in a good way. Um, but no, there's still a fair amount of work, work to do to, to um, show a deeper impact and involvement with the natural world than I think is typically recognized. It's it's just it's one of those areas, and and I'll admit that, yeah, when I was in school, these people were hunters and gatherers, and then the Europeans came, and it was treated like that's where history started. Yeah, and, and to me, that's that's like two two pieces of the narrative that you know we're trying to actively change both in in our research and in teaching is um, to um, communicate how indigenous people managed ecosystems from mountaintop to seafloor bottom that these modifications exist and that honestly if you want to go out and do good science you have to understand that like if i was an intertidal ecologist and stumbled across this rock wall um you know i'd be coming up with all kinds of crazy mechanisms for some landslide or some big storm event to make all these rocks where they shouldn't be um right like you were going to misinterpret what you see in the natural world. Um, the same as if you're doing plant surveys and you happen across the canvas patch, you're going to attribute it to all kinds of things when the reason it's there in that patch is because people put it there. Now they had a reason for putting it there, the soil conditions, light water, whatever it might be, but it's existed there by human interaction. And so if we don't understand that we're fundamentally going to do bad science um, is, is one piece um, and then also to, to think about um, being sure we're using active terminology. So not indigenous people were here, indigenous people are here and they are engaged in this work. Um, 
Right. And so, so I think both of those are, are important pieces to, to bring up. Changing tax a little bit. Um, are there research questions that y- your lab is working on right now that are, uh, I mean, I assume they're all interesting. That's why you're working on them. But what's what's sort of top of mind? What's exciting that you guys are working on right now? Right now, we've got um, a couple of projects going. Uh, one, uh, which I, I just started at Washington, Washington University a, a few years ago. And my first master's student, um, Amy Klein, is a member of the Chukchansi tribe and worked with me at my prior job at uh, Northwest Indian College, which is a, a tribal college uh, on the Lummi Reservation just, just near Bellingham. And her master's thesis is looking at how the rock wall at a clam garden supports other traditional foods. So we spend all this time talking about clams. And as I say, we spend all this time with our head in the sand looking at clams. <laughs> There's a whole lot that's also going on. Um, and when you put a complex three-dimensional environment uh, or habitat out in the ocean, it generally does lots of things. It generally increases the number of critters that are there, the type of critters, um, and the overall biomass. You can think of it as the difference between a coral reef and a flat sand, uh, flat, flat sand bottom, right? Coral reefs got a lot more going on. There's three dimensional of habitat. Animals are hiding in, in nooks and crannies. There's more primary productivity going on. The same thing can happen in a clam garden when you move from what might have been a flat or a rocky or a steep kind of gravelly beach to putting in all of these, say, uh, just under basketball-sized rocks for a kilometer that are you know 10 feet high and uh, 15, 20 feet wide. That's a massive amount of habitat. It's a massive amount of little nooks and crannies for critters to hide. That's lots of rock for algae to grow on, which things are going to graze and eat. That's a lot of primary productivity happening. So how is that functioning? And her primary question was, of the things that are living out there, which ones can be considered traditional foods? Which ones are part of an indigenous diet? And so she worked to come up with a list of about 21 species that included things like sea cucumbers and red rock crabs and scallops and uh, chitons and large limpets um, that were all traditionally consumed. And her question was, do we find more of these on clam garden rock walls compared to other rocky areas? So natural bedrock places that haven't been heavily modified. Um, how many of these foods are there and how many are on these clam garden rock walls? Um, so we spent a fair amount of time crawling around on our hands and knees counting and measuring little critters and trying to figure out how to quantify how uh, what the rugosity is of a beach, which is just a way of thinking about how bumpy it is. Is it flat or does it go up and down a lot? Cause that's mm-hmm. how much habitat's available for the critters. Um, and that was done in the, in the Southern Gulf and that was a, a really cool project. Um, and then we're just gearing up. Actually, we're going to do our first lows uh, here in May. Um, starting on the 17th, I believe. Um, and that'll be our first trip up to Quadra. And we're looking at how um, or if clams are eating different things on different beaches. And so there's been observations of increased growth and observations of increased density and biomass of clams associated with these features. But it, is it related to diet? Is there 
some food sources that are more plentiful within a clam garden compared to a non-clam garden. So to figure that out, what is a clam eat? Um, you can't very well ask it. Um, and gut content analysis doesn't work so well. So we're going to collect a whole bunch of clams and then based on the fatty acid profiles. So you've heard of like omega fatty three based on the fatty acid profiles, you can figure out what kind of phytoplankton was it eating. Um, and based on the stable isotopes, you can figure out what was the source of the, of that carbon as well. And so we're hoping to use those methods and some phytoplankton collection to figure out what they're eating in different areas and how that relates to um, productivity. Oh, okay. So even though the clams are, you know, in their happy Goldilocks zone mm -hmm. on a clam garden beach, they might have access to different food resources than they would in their Goldilocks zone on an unmodified beach? Yeah, that's, that's, that's one, one of our questions. Um, and there's a couple of mechanisms that could, that could be related to that, whether it be um, uh, macroalgae growing on the, uh, on the rock wall or increased productivity of um, uh, what are called benthic diatoms. So um, you can have little photosynthetic algae that are living on the sand or the kind of warm pool that's created at a clam garden as the water's held in behind the wall. So that, that would give us an idea if diets are different or, or if it's not, then, um, then we're potentially looking at feeding rates could be different. Neat. How does your work with, with local communities influence the sort of questions that you even go ask in the first place? Yeah, I think we have to pass the test of, is this helping? Um, is there, is this a cool, like sciencey question or is there an aspect of this that's, uh, important to people that, that people care about? And I think, uh, as I alluded to earlier, there's, you know, certain things that, that we don't, we don't test, um, or we don't ask Like we, we're not testing traditional knowledge. Is it, is it valid? We're, we're asking questions around the way people have managed ecosystems for a long time. How does that play out looking at ecological mechanisms? And so when you go out and till a beach, is it changing the grain sizes of the beach? Uh, when you um, create a really complex rock wall, is it also creating habitat um, for traditional foods? Um, so we're looking at, the sort of mechanisms that are at play there. And, and is it a, just a relationship of um, habitat complexity and, and audacity and, and, and food availability? Um, or what's, how are these features functioning from a mechanistic understanding? Meaning if we observe more, then um, that's the first step, uh, more or different. But then the second question is, is why? What's, what's driving that pattern? Is there a question that you haven't had a chance to research yet that you would really love to wrap your head around and, and tackle? One I've always wanted to do is um, I want to know how many clam gardens there are, what's the total area, and how many extra pounds of clams are produced every year just on clam gardens. Like there's so many, we, we have no idea on, on, the, on the, the distribution of density uh, we're talking about a feature that's shared up and down the coastline from Washington to Alaska. Uh, and we just have no idea how many are there, how big they are, 
um, how old they are. And if we just zoom out and think how many acres of new habitats been created and what is that new habitat doing in terms of number of clams, the amount of water is being filtered and cleaned, uh, the amount of production coming from it. I think we're, uh, all working in super cool systems that have really cool questions, but I've always just been really curious. The one thing, like if I could just wave a wand and know, like, I would really want to know just, just how many of these things are there? How big are they? And what, <laughs> what are they doing? Like, we just don't have that, that scale of information. And partially because it's been a dream of mine to be like, I just want to get in a boat and just drive from here to Alaska and count every clam garden on the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, if I could, if I could know anything, that'd be good. That's a good point because we're talking, you know, we're talking about kilometers and kilometers and, you know, all the way up and down the coast of these gardens with these clams doing their thing that must be having an impact on the overall ocean or like shoreline ecology that we just haven't even grasped yet. Yeah. And I think that's why Amy's work's also really cool because it's, it's going beyond the clams to think about what are all the other critters that are living in, in all these rock walls that have been created by people over the course of thousands of years. Think about how, much algae is now growing that wasn't there before just the volume of water that's being filtered every day that wouldn't have been before. Um, and because they're so nuanced, really the only way you can go out and count them, uh, is poking around at low tide. Um, and so you can do a little bit of hunting here and there on Google earth, but you really have to get out and, and kind of see them firsthand to get an idea of, of, uh, uh, how they're functioning or, or, if they're really a clam garden or what's going on. Fair enough. Well, if you ever get the magic wand, let me know and we'll have you back on it. <laughs> I think that's probably a great place to wrap up. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah. Thank you. You can learn more about Dr. Hatch and find links to information about his research at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for joining us. And we'll be back next week with more science for the people. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>